0: So hello, I'm Alex Ratkeen, I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed virtually by George Schmuckler. And people have seen um, episodes of this previously will know I always want the person I'm speaking to to introduce themselves rather than me rabbiting on trying to explain who I think they are. So George, over to you. Can you you tell us about yourself?
1: Okay, well, firstly, thank you for the invitation to this uh, discussion. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm retired from clinical practice. I was formerly a consultant at the uh, Maudsley Hospital and for some years medical director as well. Um, I'm now uh, an emeritus professor at uh, the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London and my research interests I'm continuing despite my retirement and now mainly mental health law reform, um, ways of thinking about reducing uh, recourse to coercive interventions in mental health care and also understanding risk and risk assessment and, and what some of the issues that arise from this in in mental health uh, services.
0: Brilliant, oh gosh there were so many things I could be asking about George from that smuggler's of of interest <laughs> that you have but What I was really wanting to sort of drill into today with you is is this idea of fusion law, because you're one of the leading proponents of this idea. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of, well, introduce the idea for people, introduce the concept, and then we can dig into some of its nuances.
1: Okay, well, the idea uh, of fusion law is that instead of having separate mental health act, which I will tell you is, uh, unsupportable from a moral point of view and a separate mental capacity act that a non discriminatory um, approach to mental health care indeed all health care is to have a single generic act which what we could call a mental capacity act and which is applicable across all of medical specialities and indeed uh, in, in social care. So there would not be a separate mental uh, health act. Um, I can go into why I think this. Yes, no please, please. Okay, well people with a diagnosis of a mental illness or or a mental disorder are denied some fundamental human rights on an equal basis with with others in, in our society. And indeed in virtually all societies because they, where there is a separate Mental Health Act, uh, it it, it is very similar to what we have in this country. Um, And the the rights that are violated are right to autonomy or self-determination and a right to liberty and the right to security of one's bodily and uh, psychological integrity. Uh, And these are rights which uh, protect against unwarranted state intrusions, uh, paternalistic and other. Now, the violation of these fundamental rights becomes very clear when we realise that conventional mental health law discriminates, as I've said, unfairly against people with a mental disorder. Uh, And that this becomes very clear when we look at the Mental Health Act against the Mental Capacity Act or what governs involuntary detention and treatment in patients with a mental disorder versus what governs involuntary interventions in people with all other disorders, in fact, all other people. So if we look at what happens in the case of non-psychiatric disorders, where there's an issue, a question of whether an involuntary de- intervention is appropriate and here there are two elements the first is the person's capacity ability to make a decision for themselves and if the person is judged to have capacity then their position is respected even if the outcome may be grave and seems to others imprudent or unwise However, just the absence of uh, decision-making capacity is not enough for uh, an intervention against the person's objection, it also needs to be in the person's best interests. And best interests here has a a significant component of the person's wishes and feelings or uh, beliefs and values, or I should say, and beliefs and values. (coughs) Um, And this emphasis on the patient's perspective, I think, is increasing uh, in certainly judgments from from the courts. So these two considerations of uh, decision-making capacity and best interests play virtually no role in the initiation of detention and treatment of people with a mental disorder. Here, the rules are entirely different. There's no overlap. For, in the case of mental disorder, involuntary detention and treatment are based on two different criteria. The first is a diagnosis of a mental disorder, usually very, very vaguely defined, rather blurred uh, edges. And secondly, a risk criterion, a perceived risk to the person's health or safety or, to, uh, the prote- or, or required for the protection of others. And so when we compare these two different sets of rules, we can see that autonomy or the right for the person's, uh, uh, for the person to self-determine and to reject treatment that is offered is not respected in the same way for people with a mental disorder as it is for people with every other kind uh, disorder. Now, in a pluralistic society like ours, I think attention to a person's beliefs and values, which may vary very greatly in people of different cultures, is as required in the uh, Mental Capacity Act, I think is absolutely critical uh, in the civil commitment um, Uh, approach. And we know in our society that there are huge differences in in the use of uh, mental health uh, detention, uh, according to different uh, ethnic uh, groups. Now, what the comparison between mental health care and general health care demonstrates is that the turn in medicine away from paternalism to self-determination, to informed consent over the past 50 years or so, seems to pass psychiatry by. So that's the first area, the one of autonomy. The second area is is another major and I think totally unacceptable um, area of discrimination against people with a diagnosis of mental disorder. And that is the protection of others element in the risk criterion. Now, people with men liable to being detained, albeit in a hospital, on the basis of the risk they pose or the the risk they are deemed to pose, risk assessment is a rather difficult area, and without the need for such a person to have committed an offence or to be, or for it to be like a person has committed an offence. Now, everybody else other than people with a mental illness, a mental disorder, need to have committed some kind of offence or to be strongly suspected of having committed an offence before they can be detained. Now, the only other group apart from people with mental disorder are people with infectious diseases. Um, these are—it's very rare for a person with an infectious disease in this country to be detained or quarantined. About ten a year in England, versus about sixty thousand a year for people on a mental health uh, section. And also, those with infectious uh, diseases cannot be treated. They can be quarantined, but not. Treated, and I think the Coronavirus Act of two thousand and twenty, I think, is is similar. Although I'm not sure what the treatment uh,
0: is for. No, it's people. the same. You you can be you can be required to isolate and quarantined. You're bre- breaching the criminal law if you seek to abscond, but you can't be you can't be treated against your will. Right.
1: Okay. So here we have a situation where we have a small group of people who are deemed present a risk to others who can be detained, whilst a much, much larger group of people equally at risk of serious acts of violence, cannot be detained purely on the basis of risk. I mean, this is clearly discriminatory, that if we're to have a fair or just system, then everyone, everyone who presents an equal level of risk, which is regarded as unacceptable in our society, should be equally liable to be detained or no one should be detained on the basis of risk alone, only after they've uh, committed an offence.
0: Yeah.
1: So these are the two areas, critical areas, uh, where mental health law of the conventional type um, discriminates against people with mental illness. And it's interesting why why this is the case, when one thinks about what are the, the areas What are the stereotypes that are most common in our society, indeed in most societies, so deeply culturally rooted? And they are first, that people with a mental illness are not competent. They're unable to make a sound decision, a sound judgment. And so why why should we test whether the person can make a decision competently or not? And secondly, that people with a mental disorder are necessarily, intrinsically, inherently dangerous to others. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you
1: think about, well, what what are the, the two criteria in the Mental Health Act? They have a mental disorder. That is, well, they obviously are not capable of making sound decisions. And they present a risk to themselves or other people. Now, I think this is a very compelling case that we need to find some solution to this problem. And we are talking about civil and political rights, which in, as I understand, I'm not a lawyer, in international law require immediate realisation, not progressive realisation as some of the economic, cultural and social rights. Yeah? So, you know, how, what is the solution uh, to this problem? And the solution that uh, I and other colleagues propose is we have a single law a single law which does not discriminate between people with mental disorder and all other patients. So this is the comprehensive generic fusion law, which uh, I'm proposing should be based on capacity, best interest principles, because those respect the autonomy of uh, persons, their rights to self-determination and to refuse treatment and also consider seriously whether it's in the best interest from the patient's perspective that an involuntary intervention is made. So there is no need for a specific uh, mental health law. Um, Now, the reason it's called a fusion law and John Dawson and I came up with this, this title is that it actually incorporates, brings together the strengths of both the mental capacity law and the one major strength of the mental health law. So, the mental capacity law, as I've said, the strength is its respect for autonomy. But the civil commitment law is very strong in the regulation of the use of force. So, who makes the decision? For how long? Where can the person be? kept as an involuntary patient. What are the arrangements for reviews, for appeals? Um, What limitations are there to the use of particular kinds of interventions, more serious interventions? And they are entirely lacking, of course, from the Mental Capacity Act, which talks about proportionate uh, use of uh, force in, in, I think in the context of restriction.
0: Yes, it's restraint. Yes, it, it's talking about necessity. So that, that
1: area needs to be uh, bolstered in the fusion law. Yes. But it's fusion law because it takes from both what uh, we consider
0: to be the strengths of each. Yeah, there's so many things to unpack there. But I think one one thing I just want to sort of make sure people have have really heard your, your perspective on is the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, so the treaty body who oversees the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, might well say, if they were a party to this conversation, well, as it were, why, why are you going to all this effort to create a law based on an invalid concept? Because the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities would say, mental capacity is itself not a tool, it leads to unlawful discrimination. So they, I don't know necessarily what alternative they would suggest, but they would definitely say that a law based on mental capacity and then also, sort of separately, the concept of best interest in the, in the sense that in particular, the sense of somebody else making the decision for the individual, they would say that that equally is against article 12, the right to legal capacity. So there's a kind of, by you've jumped out of the frying pan of discrimination on kind of mental health grounds, straight into the fire of a kind of much broader brush discrimination. And I'd be just really interested, I mean, I'm always fascinated with, with your, your take on this, and I think people listening to this would really like to know how you then respond to that.
1: Okay, well, if we look at uh, the CRPD and the interpretation that is made by the committee, it's the committee's interpretation that um, a capacity-based interest approach, as defined by them, which is not necessarily the the, the, the most commonly uh, used definition. But they are arguing that this violates Article 12, which is the, the attribution of universal legal capacity to all persons. Now, the key phrase in Article 12 for me is that one must respect the rights, will and preferences of people with disability. And whilst the committee has defined a lot of terms which are not actually in the convention, like substitute decision-making, best interests, capacity, they have not defined what is meant by will and preferences, because these are words that, that are a bit unusual in, in uh, certainly in mental health law and in, in the law in general, apart from wills as testamentary... Uh, Uh, beneficiaries. Um, So I've looked and thought very carefully about what what this might mean, what will and preferences might mean. And I think that the key issue is that there is a difference between a will, the will, and a preference. So the reason why I I say this is firstly, just in, in everyday language, you wouldn't say where there's a preference, there's a way you say where there's a will there's a way so the will is something that is more resolute more determined and more powerful than a preference that's in common everyday language in the law i believe you're the lawyer that if if a statute has two words will and preferences that they must mean uh, different things
0: or why uh, well yes there's a legal principle that you don't use two words unless the two words are both doing work
1: Uh, And thirdly, and I don't want to go into this in detail, but in the philosophy of mind and action, there is, in the philosophy of a number of people, Kant, for for example, but in contemporary philosophers like Watson and uh, Hieronyme, that there is a distinction between the will, the will being a kind of higher order structure, which, against which, a desire or an intention or a wish is tested in order to determine whether it provides, it acts as a reason, it gives a reason for the person to carry through with that intention, wish or desire or not. Does it actually fit with, is it consistent with or coherent with the will? And the will is manifest in a person's deep, deeply held beliefs values, commitments, uh, and conception of the good. So that's the way in which I'm now defining the will. I think it's a reasonable definition. And I think most philosophers will agree that it is reasonable. They may disagree with various elements, of course, but they wouldn't be philosophers if they agreed with each other. Um, And if we then look at coming back to one must respect the person's rights, will and preferences. Well, rights, I think we can understand what they are, and they're actually very clearly articulated in in the excellent CRPD. I think CRPD is is an excellent charter that I hope we might be able to apply to uh, all people with disabilities, including people with mental health disabilities. It's just this problem with the interpretation of Article 12. So what I am proposing is that where there is a disjunction between a person's will and a person's preference, that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. You can't respect both if they point in different directions. Um, And the best way of actually elucidating this further is to take an advanced directive an advanced directive which of, a, of a Ulysses kind. So here is somebody who's saying, look, I know that at some point it's possible, on the basis of previous experience, that I will have some kind of disturbance in my thinking where I will not be myself. I, and I'm very likely to say that I don't require treatment for what I'm now saying I clearly do require treatment so an example of a patient is who's, who's had two episodes of the manic illness and who's seriously disrupted her development as an actress you know she's a prestigious art school and it's clear that if she has another prolonged episode you know she will not be able to continue so she, she made a, an advance directive saying if I have two or more nights where I'm unable to sleep for three hours or more. I go out wandering in central London in the early hours of the morning on my own. And if I say that I'm a resurrection of Sarah burnout, at this point, I need treatment. And if I reject the treatment, I'm saying it's appropriate that I be treated against my will. So here she's saying my will is my values, my deeply held important values and commitments to becoming an actress, which is something I've strived for, I've managed to go to a prestigious drama school, I'm doing well, people say I've got potential. This is really important. I don't want this to be jeopardized. And I know that I will make a preference, quite likely I'll make a preference for non-treatment. When I'm in the state and I've given you the, the exact criteria, how you will be able to tell when I am in that state, when I'm not myself. Uh, And I want to be treated as quickly and as effectively as possible so I can get back to to my studies. So that shows the relationship between the will and preference and how the the, the patient is predicting there'll be this disjunction and her wish to exercise her will um, under those circumstances. Now, I'm also thinking more and more that one can extend the notion of capacity and best interests by, and particularly in that area of um, way, use or way, which people may find often quite difficult in deciding whether the person has decision-making capacity or not, that that can be clarified by the use of beliefs and values, commitments, concept of the good that the patient has, that is their will, and whether there is a preference being um, uh, expressed by the the patient, which is seriously radically inconsistent with the will. Now this is common in in mental illnesses, people with a psychosis may be saying things that are entirely incoherent in relationship to the, the, the person's will or their deep beliefs and, and values. And I would suggest that the person's ability to weigh or use information is best assessed in terms of the coherence between the will and preferences. Mm-hmm. and i think that there are some judges that agree with this and the case that really demonstrates this extremely clearly is the case of king's college hospital and c uh, i think it was in 2015 and this was the case of the the woman who wanted to live a life that sparkles now here was a situation of of uh, someone and i can read little bits
0: from it, but we probably don't have
1: time. We're, we're but, beginning to run but, short
0: on time, George, so we'll have to direct people to read it afterwards, I'll put a link Okay,
1: up. but essentially this was a, a woman whose values were very unconventional, that she wanted a life that sparkled, where she would be look beautiful, have lots of money, Um, It didn't matter how many marriages it would take once her husband's uh, finances were exhausted, she would find somebody else. Lots of affairs, degree of alcohol abuse, living it up, wanting to look beautiful, who had a number of setbacks, took a huge overdose, paracetamol, and developed kidney failure. And to keep her alive, she needed dialysis. The prognosis for recovery, according to the renal physician, was excellent, 85% or, or more. Nonetheless, she rejected dialysis. And the question arose, well, did she have capacity? And the judge ruled, well, yes, she did have capacity because her decision, her rejection of treatment was entirely consistent with what her system of values and the way in which she had chosen to live her life up to this point These were entirely coherent and non-contradictory, and he decided that she should not be forced to have renal dialysis. So here is actually an entry of belief and values into the capacity assessment, Mm. not just in the special interests, in best interests, but actually it also clarifies, I think, what we mean by best interests. So if we believe that the disjunction or the gap or the outer jointness of the preference that's being expressed actually is a threat to the person's deep beliefs, values, to their will, then what is in their best interest is to give effect, to help them to give effect to their best interests, commitments, and concept of the good life. So it's filling that gap is what is in, in, in the person's best interests.
0: Gosh. George, you've left so many things. There are now, I deliberately, um, we, we try and keep these within sort of 20 minutes uh, and there are so many other things I'd like to ask you. Luckily, you can, I can point to people and I'll put the link to your book, Men in White Coats, where you really amplify and develop so much of that. And I, I would say for people watching or listening to this, it's a fantastically clear and simple explanation of both current law and where you might want to go in future. So it's a, it's a really good, it, it's very much aimed at, as it were, non-specialists and is incredibly helpful in explicating it. But for, for today's purposes, George, I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw time, although there's so many questions I want to ask you. But thank you very much indeed for your time today, George. I'm going to okay. stop recording now.